Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. Dr. Andrew Mullally. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and this is the show where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. As usual, today's show will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. We didn't need to look far for this week's guest unraveling the mysteries of obstetrics and gynecology, or gynecology and obstetrics. We have our own Dr. Chris Stroud. Yeah, we continue our series on several medical specialties so you can get a better understanding not only of what types of patients each specialty treats, but what training and experience is necessary to become that type of physician. And before jumping into the world of what it takes to become an obstetrician gynecologist, I thought it would be good to discuss some background information. And I actually, I I couldn't help myself. Like I was shown this article recently about Um, During the time in the COVID pandemic, Chris, I want to get your thoughts. Premature births have fallen some 90%. Is that possible? Have you seen that? Yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, that article looked at several countries and and they saw dramatic decreases in their admissions in their intensive care unit for babies. Uh, And I think they were all standing around looking at each other saying, where are the babies? Um, And we've been joking a lot about making babies during the pandemic. (laughs) but the, the whole concept of preterm birth, that is babies born before 37 weeks, has plagued our specialty of obstetrics and gynecology for generations. Um, and until sort of the, um, the discovery of progesterone's ability to decrease the chance of recurrent preterm birth, we had really made no progress in the last 100 years at the preterm birth rate. Um, and so everybody is always looking for that elusive uh, sort of holy grail of preterm birth prevention. Gosh, looking at this article, it sounds like the pandemic was the thing that we, <laughs> that we needed all along. I can't begin to um, hypothesize as to what it is about the pandemic that would decrease preterm birth rates. Pretty fascinating. Because in the article, they talk about different potential things, but none of them seems to make sense. And one thing you were talking about offline is that bed rest does not reduce preterm birth. No, one of the things that's probably most commonly suggested or recommended, yet the data has shown time and again, bed rest does not prevent preterm birth. Yeah. And so I think it's probably erroneous to think that the pandemic led to pregnant women laying around in bed all of the time. Um, so it's, it's probably worth trying to figure out how activities or behaviors may have been affected by uh, the pandemic in these countries that saw a dramatic decrease. And is it, was it really social? Is it cultural? Is it both? It's hard to know. It's fascinating. I know we've talked with a lot of our guests on this show about some of the positive things that came from the pandemic, spending more time with our families, uh, watching great movies, things like that, you you have to wonder where that connection with preterm birth might lie. Well, I hope they figure it out. I think there's going to be a lot to unravel in the future with, you know, we saw such a decrease in just general illness. Now, to some extent, if you never interact with anybody, you can't transmit illnesses, but this has really affected so many areas. Man, if we could make a dent in preterm birth, that would be great. One more reason for all of the introverts to celebrate that uh, now by, you know, behaving the way they, they wanted to behave naturally, preterm birth rates may fall. That, that sounds like a study there, Tom, right? Introvert versus extrovert and preterm birth rate. Ooh, yeah, we could break that out, but I don't have time for that. So let's go on to the next question. So you have an, not a hyphenated, but an and specialty, obstetrics and gynecology. Why didn't they come up with one word for the specialty? And what does each of those two words mean, Chris? That's a great question. Uh, the quick answer is, I don't know. Uh, obstetrics um, is the, the study of really all things birth. So pregnancy, uh, labor, the birth itself, and post-labor or postpartum care. That's obstetrics. Uh, gynecology is the study of the female reproductive tract um, uh, from adolescence or birth really to death. And the two obviously go together quite well. And so as early as I can find, um, you know, notation, it's been called obstetrics and gynecology. So Chris, when I was growing up, I I never even heard of a female obstetrician gynecologist. Now I read somewhere 
that said that 90% of current residents in OBGYN are women. What's happened? What's led to it? What insights can you give us? Yeah, I mean, we've seen some pretty fascinating uh, changes. About 93% of OBGYNs were male just five decades ago, not that long. Uh, That figure now has gone from 93% down to 41%. And what's even more interesting is if you look at the pipeline, so to speak, only about 18% um, of OBGYN uh, physicians in training uh, are male. So what used to be a very male-dominated specialty has changed in just a few decades to um, men are the distinct minority. Uh, Now, you might think, well, it's just because there's so many more women in medicine, and to a degree that's true. But if we look at other specialties, so in 2017, uh, in the United States anyway, uh, 85% of residents uh, were female, as I said, but among all specialties, men outnumbered women at 53 to 47%. So it's not across the board. Really, obstetrics and gynecology has seen the female shift that other specialties have not seen at all. And I don't know that there's any great explanation for that. A lot of people publish a lot of opinions on it. Uh, and one of the, I think one of the most powerful arguments is uh, medical students. So when they are faced uh, with a negative experience with a patient, and in this case, it would be a patient um, openly preferring a female to be present at their exam or asking that a male student not be present at their exam. That only has to happen once or twice for the student to think, yeah, this was interesting, but it's not a specialty for me. Uh, And they move on and choose something else. Um, That's one of the better arguments uh, that I've heard, but but it is pretty fascinating. Well, I I could attest to that. I mean, having relatively recently gone through training, I'd say easily a third of women did not want me as the male medical student in the room following the female OB-GYN in medical school. And uh, it's kind of annoying because you sit on ice and then the the doctor comes out and you all talk about it. And it's very interesting stuff. And honestly, I don't begrudge the patient because they probably signed up for a woman doctor um, for their OB-GYN. But as a student, it makes it really challenging. You do kind of get the feeling as a guy, you might not be welcome there. Yeah, and I think that doesn't have to happen very often to a medical student, and they're, you know, completely decided against. What I, what I think is probably interesting is when I was in medical school, it was it was right around the time we started using electricity and fixtures, um, <laughs> but, but but since there weren't many female medical students, it it wasn't as possible to prefer a female student or a female caregiver with more women entering medicine in general, suddenly that became possible. And then one thing I believe probably led uh, to another. I've been really fortunate in my career, and then I've never really felt as though I I was in trouble because of my gender, but the self-selection takes place. You know, patients don't come to see you if your gender matters and you're not the gender that they, uh, they want to see. And then in the latter years of my career, I've always said, well, if if someone values gender that much, they shouldn't see me. They should see someone else. And there have been plenty of people, thank God, that uh, that didn't value gender that much, and they were just as happy to see me. But um, we've talked, it's been maybe a year or maybe two years ago on this show about some of the workforce predictions, yes. you know, with, say, female urologists or right. female neurosurgeons. And, you know, the gender gaps, you might say, in the specialties are really a sociological phenomenon that's hard to explain. What about just overall numbers of OB-GYN? Is it shrinking or is there a shortage because the population is growing and the number of OB-GYNs is not? You know, as we've talked about with other specialties, uh, there's a lot of opinion on that and not necessarily uh, a lot of hard fact. Uh, there's about 34,000 OB-GYN physicians in America. And that's about 5% of the total United States physician population or somewhere around just under three OB-GYNs per 10,000 women. Um, Some have said that there's as many as 8,000 too few OBGYNs, and they'll look to statistics like a a half of all U.S. counties have lack a single OBGYN. And certainly at various times in the last couple of decades, I can remember when there were dramatic shortages of obstetrical providers of any flavor, uh, particularly in rural counties, uh, with women having to drive 
you know, many, many hours to get to obstetrical care beyond sort of basic care. Um, and we've seen, I think, that ebb and flow with some of the supply issues and reimbursement issues and medical malpractice issues. It's a complex equation. So we could use more OBGYN doctors. I think the numbers probably suggest that's the case, or at least we could use them uh, distributed more evenly. Ah, yes. Or family physicians who can do most of OB. You know, what percent of deliveries or OB care do you think family physicians can be, you know, well-suited to take care of, Chris? Well, I'll probably defer to Andrew. He's an expert on that, having just finished his training a couple of years ago. What do you think, Andrew? Well, I mean, I guess the it's mostly the the regular vaginal births. I'd say all family doctors get that in their training, and and that would probably accomplish you know whatever the non C section rate is sixty some seventy percent. And then there's definitely you know I I did some limited training in C sections when I thought I might be doing those, and I know some of my friends do those regularly as part of their practice. So it's an option, but it depends where you land. You know, if you're in a rural area, as, as Chris has kind of. Uh, um, pointed to, they need you. If you're in the big city, you don't want to be doing that. You want the, the people who do that 24-7 to be doing it. And it's interesting, we have to refer back to another show that we uh, recorded on family medicine, but that's just another lifestyle sort of um, displeaser. Uh, the hours that go with birth would make a family physician maybe choose not to do that. And it sort of becomes a self-fulfilling circle there. Um, it, it can be unattractive to do to do birth. Babies tend to come at strange hours of the night, and it, it is not very conducive to a controlled lifestyle. Although people have been creative and tried to invent ways to make that better, uh, but at the end of it all, uh, birth business is on baby time and not uh, not a not a friendly clock sometimes. And before getting to the story of what it takes to become an OB guy and what they do. We have a trivia question, and this is based on the life of Chris. Chris <laughs> opened and runs a freestanding birth center, Holy Family Birth Center. Now, since 2004, out-of-hospital births have become more common in the United States. We're not thinking of elevators or backup taxi cabs. Home births increased by 77%. Birth center deliveries more than doubled. So as of the latest data we have three years ago, what percentage of births in the United States took place outside a hospital? I was so far off on this number when I looked it up. You'll probably do better than I did. The answer to the question will come at the end of the show, but after this break here on Dr. Doctor, we'll be back with the life of the OBGYN. We're back for our special interview when we're going to learn more about Chris Stroud. Chris is a board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist and certified medical consultant in the Creighton model of fertility care and NAPRO, or Natural Procreative Technology. He's got more than 20 years' experience, and his practice centers on infertility, recurrent pregnancy loss, natural hospital birth, and minimally invasive robotic surgery. He graduated from medical school at the University of Florida, he then did a residency in OBGYN at the University of Virginia, where serendipitously he met his wife, Marianne, a certified nurse midwife. He later attended Auburn University, where he got a master's in business administration. I didn't realize this. No wonder he's so smart. In September of 2014, he left a physician group in Fort Wayne to open the Fertility and Midwifery Care Center. And in the spring of last year, 2019, he and his wife opened Holy Family Birth Center. And it's our city's first freestanding birth center. He and his wife have five children. He travels and speaks extensively in a variety of topics, unsurprisingly related to fertility care, minimally interventional labor and birth, and his conversion to Catholicism, which is another episode in the waiting. So, Chris, welcome to the show as our guest. Well, it's much better to be as a guest than as a co-host. Thank you. <laughs> of course, in the intro, we lost all the listeners when you said we're going to dive into Chris Stroud. And then now there's only two people listening, you know, each, of our, each of our mothers. Maybe. <laughs> so, Chris, after your four grueling years of medical school at the University of Florida, what in tarnation led you to want to be an obstetrician gynecologist? 
Well, I've said this before. They took the bottom half of the academic class and we went to the basement. And if you could bench press your weight, you went into orthopedics. And if you couldn't, they let you into obstetrics and gynecology. And, and I, wasn't, I wasn't good at the bench press, so this is how I ended up. Now, you know, it's interesting. I mean, the, 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 the way medical students end up choosing a specialty is a fascinating thing in and of itself. Uh, and in all of our specialties that we've highlighted, you know, we've heard funny stories about that. And I, and I always wonder when I'm talking to students, do you, do you choose the subject matter? Do you choose the mentor? Um, I think in retrospect, I chose the mentor. Uh, Dr. Patrick Duff is at the University of Florida. He's still there. And Dr. Duff, if you should be listening, um, I, I think I wanted to be him. And uh, so I, I chose his specialty. Uh, ironically, in the bigger story, Dr. Duff is and was a faithful Catholic. I was not at the time. Um, mm -hmm. And I remember being intrigued as uh, he shared some of his Catholic views uh, in teaching. And in, in retrospect, maybe that had something to do with my rather complex uh, conversion later on in life. But I really liked urology. I, I thought urology was fascinating. The surgery was fascinating. The cancer part was fascinating. There was just one problem with urology. Do you know what that was? the patients tended to be men. <laughs> and Dr. Mullally can't afford to agree because he'll offend half of his patients. But, but I'm here to tell you, listeners, men are horrible patients. And, and I wanted nothing to do with taking care of men. And so I had to decide against urology. Well, OBGYN sort of seemed like female urology. Uh, certainly the Euro, the urogenital tract um, overlaps with the, the reproductive tract and it was fascinating and it was diverse and it was young children and babies and elderly women and surgery and medicine and it was exciting and uh, I just kind of fell in love I think with the adrenaline. That's amazing because in medical school uh, you know we were talking I think offline or no I guess it was in the episode on, on family medicine I felt always uncomfortable going into those um, those well women checks. I felt like I wasn't wanted in there, like Andrew was talking about. So, what was it that you were comfortable in that setting, where many of us, you know, young men were not? Well, the truth is, you were unwanted in, in those. <laughs> uh, I think all of our listeners that are women would say, "Well, he's right. He was unwanted, uh, and I was too." Uh, I think I was just too dense to be bothered by being unwanted. Uh, maybe, maybe it was my temperament. Um, but, you know, it's gotten better. I think medical education has gotten a lot better. And uh, the good schools and the good teachers have found a way to educate students without objectifying the patient. Um, and that's a, that's a gift in itself. Um, but I've, I've seen medical students get exposed to OB and, it's the birth in room three, and it's the placenta in room two. Um, and again, my mentor, Dr. Patrick Duff, did such a great job of trying to make students understand that you're being invited into something sacred here. Mm. Treat it with the respect that it deserves. Um, and I guess that he was able to convey that in such a way that uh, the patients opened up and didn't mind letting themselves participate in our education. It, it sounds like that training was formative for you, Chris. Tell us more about what, what your residency training was like. Yeah, residency in obstetrics and gynecology is, um, is pretty standard across the country in residency programs. Mine at the University of Virginia, it's a four-year program to become a general uh, OBGYN. Um, like many uh, specialty programs, the first year is sort of a general year where you may rotate around uh, in non-obstetric things like internal medicine or maybe the intensive care unit or things like that. Uh, and then the second through fourth years are much more centered on the specialty proper. Um, uh, so the University of Virginia was pretty academic. You know, I remember the program director saying, you can wear any color tie you like as long as it's blue, uh, and you can wear any color shirt you like as long as it's blue or white. You know, uh, but it was a it was a classical academic rigorous program that uh, I enjoyed. Um, I probably enjoy it more in retrospect than I did uh, at the moment, but uh, I was really fortunate to be exposed to some great men and women 
mentors uh, and professors. I'm, um, I'm rather old, and this was before the resident work hour restrictions. And so, um, you know, whenever you hear people talk about that, it sounds like we're describing when, you know, giants walk the earth. Um, <laughs> but in reality, we did some unsafe things. We were up too long. Um, and uh, I, my wife loves to tell the story of me driving home from being on call and falling asleep at a stoplight and my car gently rolled onto the curb uh, in downtown Charlottesville, Virginia. But that's not good. That's not good health. And that's why we moved to limit resident work hours. And I'm, I'm glad we did. Uh, but it happened after I finished training. Uh, which is probably why I aged so prematurely. <laughs> you know, Chris, one of the things uh, I've been asked by people interested in OB-GYN, and maybe some of our listeners are wondering this, you know, is it possible to go through training and still follow your Catholic faith? Do you have to be around things like abortion and things that you couldn't participate in? Yeah, it's a really important question that I think a lot of students who might have an inkling to OBGYN and women's health are worried about. I mean, on this show, we've interviewed students who were deciding against pediatrics because they felt like gender reassignment was going to become the standard of care. And I think they're rightfully concerned. You know, ab abortion and contraception is a fundamental part of uh, OBGYN training, sadly, in the majority of residency programs in America. Now, there are a few notable great programs um, that you can search and find. You can find a program that likes you and you can explain your limitations of the things that you'll not do based on religious grounds. And if they'll accept that, uh, you know, you can train there. But it is, it is going to take some work on the student's part. And your, your field of uh, opportunity for residency training is going to be smaller than if you didn't have those limitations. But I would, you know, encourage listeners don't shy away from women's health and obstetrics and gynecology, not for a moment because you're Catholic. Lean into that because if any specialty needs better Catholic men and women, it's obstetrics and gynecology. And if you call the Catholic Medical Association, we can connect you with a nearby uh, pro-life OBGYN, uh, nurse midwife, whatever. They're out there, and we have met a number of Catholic medical students and residents who are just on fire to be, you know, fully Catholic in everything they do within women's health. Yeah, well said. They're there and you can connect with them. The CMA is perfectly positioned to help you make those connections. So, as you mentioned, babies come on baby time, not doctor time, not mommy time, not daddy time. So, how is your week structured as an OBGYN physician or is there a structure to it? <laughs> Well, I, like most OBGYNs, I work in a group setting, uh, which means I get to, to not be on all of the time, uh, which is, you know, it's a luxury that people before us sometimes were solo OBGYNs working alone. I don't see how they did that. Uh, I think it would be really tough to do that today. Uh, it, it could be done. It would be tough to have much of a healthy lifestyle. To just be healthy, that would be tough to do. But uh, I share call with uh, other physicians, and I'm in what we think of as an integrated uh, clinical model and that we share our practice with certified nurse midwives. So we're able to move that workload uh, across several people and the two disciplines really well so that uh, no one is doing too much and, uh, and getting too beaten up at, at any one moment. So Chris, how in the midst of that craziness of training in life did you ever have time to get married? <laughs> I, uh, it was a miracle uh, that, that I met the woman that I married, let alone had time to get married. Um, but I did um, the tried and proven method. I married a nurse, um, which is <laughs> so the only people you're exposed you. to. <laughs> yes. Right. Uh, and uh, we married my third of fourth years during the second half of my third year. Um, and as I look back, my life got so much better when I, when I got married um, for so many different reasons that are beyond the scope of, of our show. Um, but I had time simply because God put her in my life and, and she wasn't scared away by me. Um, she likes to tell the story. When I met her, I was doing an ultrasound rotation. And so I went to work wow. about nine o'clock in the morning and I got finished about three o'clock in the morning. Well, you know, dermatology hours. And yes, yes. And so, um, 
and then we started dating and then I did an intensive care unit rotation. I didn't see her for three, four days at a time because I lived in the unit. Uh, and so that was the first test to our relationship. But we, we managed to work it out mainly because of her being so understanding. If you had it to do over again, do you think you'd do OBGYN? Yeah, that's a good question. And a lot of students ask me that or residents that are rotating through will ask me that. And um, I'm reluctant to just knee jerk and say yes, but the answer is yes. And as I just have to think of my way through it, I think if I could go back and do something else, I wouldn't end up where I am. And I love where I am. I feel like I'm right in the center of God's will for my life personally and professionally. And it's hard to imagine I could have gotten to this spot um, if I hadn't done the things that I've done. Um, and I can't think honestly of another specialty that makes wearing your Catholic faith on your sleeve so easy. Uh, I mean, it, it's very simple. Maybe end-of-life issues um, with some of the pulmonology, critical care, or palliative care physicians we've talked to. Um, and certainly, uh, Andrew, especially in family medicine, provides him some opportunity. But every day, pretty much every patient encounter, if I want to and I'm willing, I can evangelize. And that's really great. And it never gets old. So, frankly, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. You know, something that all three of us have in common is we own private practices, mm. but that's not the norm. What led to you deciding to leave the, the nest of a large hospital system to go out on your own? Well, for me, it had to do with really my um, sort of second Catholic conversion. Uh, it was My first conversion was just to the faith, and my second conversion was converting to practicing like a Catholic. And I was in a large, employed, hospital-owned OBGYN group, which provided a wonderful lifestyle, but I couldn't be Catholic there very well. And I tried and had some success at it, but there was so much pressure uh, from fellow physicians and the system itself that it just became obvious it wasn't going to work. So I ventured out, really thinking I had no choice but to venture out, convinced that I would fail. Uh, but I was going to prove a point because I'm stubborn <laughs> like that. Uh, and, and thanks be to God, I didn't fail. Uh, but you're right. We're, the three of us are in a minority now. Most physicians are practicing in an employed setting. Uh, and we, the three of us, are practicing in an independent setting. Well, and, and now even with the birth center, that's got to be a whole new kind of venture. What led to that decision? And, and why are out-of-hospital births becoming so popular? Yeah, you know, I, I like to say most young girls grew up planning their wedding. My wife grew up planning her birth um, <laughs> because she, her mother was a certified nurse midwife and ran a freestanding birth center uh, in Bethesda, Maryland, long before it was a trendy, hip thing to do. And uh, so she grew up as a teenager watching natural birth. So that had a great influence on me when I met her about how birth is supposed to be. So really from the, before we got married, we talked about ideal birth and ideal natural birth. And you, you can't talk about that without talking about home birth and, uh, and birth center birth. And so all through my now 26 plus years of practice, we toyed with the idea of wouldn't it be great if only we could, et cetera, et cetera, with regard to a birth center. And then uh, a few years ago, we, uh, through some good fortune, decided this is the time. If we're ever going to do it, this is the time to do it. Uh, let's get busy and let's do some due diligence and research and, and do it. And uh, we've been open just over a year, um, a year in May. We've, I think we just had about 110 babies so far born in our birth center, and it's working. And patients seem to be happy, and babies are born, and it's, it's truly beautiful. How is this different for your life as an ob to have – these babies born in a center that you own and run versus a hospital? Yeah, so I do uh, the smart thing and uh, pay attention to my wife who tells me to stay away from the birth center. Uh, <laughs> as the, <laughs> That's probably good advice for all of our listeners. Uh, pay attention to your wife. Yes. Um, she, is, uh, she is the expert on natural birth, as nurse midwives are. I'm the expert on complicated birth, as obstetricians are. 
And so uh, my job is to run the birth center as the business person. And her job is to get the babies delivered along with the other nurse midwives uh, that we're, we're fortunate to have work with us. But uh, as an obstetrician, I don't actually participate in the births at the birth center. I could, but that's not my skill set. Um, my skill set is when things go badly and you need my surgical hands to do an emergency or a forceps birth or something like that. Um, I can do natural birth in the hospital and love it, but out of hospital birth is really, that's the, that's the purview of the nurse midwives. What, what is driving this trend national, nationally, and really it sounds like in other countries as well to some extent, why, why is everybody moving away from the hospital to give birth? Well, I don't think everyone is. I wish they were. It would help our birth center. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, I would answer that by pointing out the idea or the concept that a healthy woman goes to the hospital to have her baby. That's a relatively new concept. Um, you know, within the last 75 years, say, um, prior to that, you went to the hospital if you were sick, if something was wrong. But But nothing's wrong when you're having a baby. So, why would you go there unless something was wrong? And, and that changed sort of in the post-World War II time it, it, with affluence. You know, you go to the hospital because that's what people do. And only in rural, poor settings would anybody have their baby outside of the hospital. I think we're seeing that pendulum swing. People are recognizing that in the vast majority of cases, uh, birth is best when left alone. And it needs support and it needs monitoring but you don't have to be in a sick setting. Now, we certainly know, you and I uh, know all too well, that there are complications of pregnancy where women absolutely need to be in a hospital. And it could cost the woman her life and the baby its life if they're not. We're not talking about those cases. We're talking about the majority of cases, uh, and those are not in the majority. But we're seeing that pendulum shift, um, and I think we're seeing people understand that birth is what women are made to do uh, masterfully created to do, I think we would say. And, and it works really well sometimes away from a hospital. And that's a great point to take our break. We'll be back with more of the life of an obstetrician gynecologist here on Dr. Doctor in just a moment. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not. And their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. And we're back with Dr. Doctor talking to our very own Dr. Chris Stroud about OB-GYN as a medical specialty. And Chris, we've talked about a lot of good things. Uh, the elephant in the room, so to speak, with OB-GYN is malpractice. It's something that scares a lot of people out of it. And I, I kind of wondered what your thought was on that, how you persevered through maybe some of those fears and what your experience was. Yeah, I'll, I'll play word police a little bit. So the, the problem is not malpractice. The problem is the cost of malpractice insurance. <laughs> so we don't, have a, we don't have an epidemic or a pandemic of, of incompetent, reckless, uh, obstetrician gynecologist. Thank goodness. There are bad apples. We know that in every specialty. But that's not the challenge. The challenge is uh, trying to afford the malpractice insurance that, that you have to have to be protected. In fact, in most hospitals, you can't have privileges and be on the medical staff if you don't have medical malpractice insurance. Um, and we've seen through the last really 20 years, uh, tremendous swings in the cost of medical malpractice insurance. And there's been a few big, um, big crises, you know, in the late eighties, early nineties uh, in Florida, for example, it was, it was a big crisis. I was in medical school there and, you know, there were obstetricians, gynecologists leaving the specialty uh, in large numbers. And that led to counties, especially rural counties with no OBGYNs around. So it, it is a big problem. It's very expensive. Um, that expense varies by state. Yeah. What's the um, range I, of prices you've heard for malpractice insurance around the country? Yeah, it's difficult to compare state by state because a lot of states have secondary uh, insurance pools 
for instance, in Indiana, there's a, an injured infant fund that you pay into. Because you pay into that, your malpractice is a lot less, but what you pay into that is substantial. But, you know, you'll hear upwards uh, in Florida of $150,000 per year malpractice insurance to, uh, in some uh, more rural states, uh, it can be a lot less than that. Uh, I don't think I've ever heard of it being less than 50000 um, but I'm, I'm not an expert on state, state rates. Uh, a lot of states have caps on non-economic damages. I practice in Indiana. Indiana is, is considered a very favorable state. Right next door to us, Illinois, that's considered a very tough state uh, and a very expensive to practice obstetrics in. And so like any business, whether you're, you know, you're selling eggs or you're practicing medicine, you've got the cost of doing your business. And so one of the big costs of doing our business is paying for that premium. So right out of the gate, if you've got to pay a large expense like that, it takes a long time uh, to make that up. Uh, and that, it's a challenge in the specialty. It's been a challenge for a long time. I don't see that challenge going away anytime soon. But it hasn't stopped us from having a great career and a great practice. It's just something that, that takes some work. Well, that's a good segue, Chris, from the, the downside to the upside. What, what's the most joyful aspect of being an OB-GYN doctor? Yeah, I could answer for me, and then I could try to answer for most uh, OB-GYNs, and they're not necessarily the same. I, I think across the board, obstetrician gynecologists would say participating in, in birth and pregnancy is wonderful. Um, I think another great joy is... Um, not to the extent that Andrew and family medicine, but to a great extent, OBGYNs get to participate in longitudinal relationships. So our patients age with us. Um, and I've delivered several babies for several patients that I've gotten to know very well. Uh, I haven't yet uh, attended the birth of someone whose birth I attended. I'm old. I'm not that old yet. I haven't, haven't been doing it long enough. But statistically, I could have. It just hasn't happened. Um, but I think participating in birth is, is a wonderful thing, and the relationships and the closeness is a wonderful thing. Uh, in my particular practice, I tend to dedicate most of my energy to fertility and uh, recurrent pregnancy loss. And for me to open my email every morning, and once in a while there's an email from somebody maybe in a, in a city a long away from me that I maybe operated on or maybe help them become pregnant or prevent recurrent losses, and they show me a picture of their child, um, it just doesn't get better than that. That is a way of recharging my spiritual batteries and saying, let's go do battle. We're winning. Uh, without those, you can get down and out pretty easily. Um, but I think to summarize that, you know, to make a long story longer, um, it's getting to feel like you're relevant in people's lives. But that's probably true in medicine. I mean, across the specialties, if someone were thinking about medicine versus something else, I would say to them, I can't imagine another job you could do, hard or easy, rich or poor, that would allow you to feel on a regular basis like you actually are relevant. As, as almost silly as that sounds, we feel relevant uh, every day, and it's a beautiful feeling. Yeah, that's, that's a huge blessing because that, you know, you had mentioned kind of recharging your batteries. That's, that's the truth. I mean, it's so easy to get down sometimes, you know, but if you have just a little bit of that, it keeps you going. You know, one of my greatest moments in my entire career will always be a couple of years ago when uh, at mass, several women walked by all with bellies <laughs> and they all said hi to me. And one of my kids in the pew in front of me turned around and looked at me and said, Dad, you're a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, okay. Yes, thank, yes, you are. Thank you, God. I, now, it's over. I could die right here. My, my, my children have acknowledged me, and I have value. Chris, well, and, yeah. oh, go ahead, Andrew. I, I wanted to talk to him more about midwives. You know, that's kind of a unique thing about your practice and looking at some of the statistics, you know, especially with your wife being a certified nurse midwife, the, the stats that I saw was that midwives deliver about 12% of babies born vaginally and 8% total of, of babies born in the U.S. 
I kind of wondered if we could delve into that more. You know, when is it appropriate to see a nurse midwife instead of an OB-GYN? You know, t- tell us more about them. Sure. Yeah, nurse midwives are um, nurses who uh, then go on and get a master's in nurse midwifery. Uh, some of them pursue graduate degrees beyond the master's level. Um, every state licenses nurse midwives a little differently. Um, specifically, nurse midwives have to be nurses before they can be uh, midwives. Uh, there are midwives that are not nurses that are licensed in various states. Sometimes they're called direct entry midwives or certified professional midwives. Um, and every state uses a different vocabulary and a different licensing for that. Um, but universally in America, certified nurse midwives are nurses before they're midwives. Um, and they're trained in the normal. Uh, they're trained in a wellness model. So uh, one way to look at pregnancy and birth is it's normal until there's evidence that it is not. And then when there's evidence that it is not, get help and get that abnormality addressed. That's a nurse midwife's approach to pregnancy. I was trained as a physician um, in the illness model. You know, uh, in, an obst- in an obstetrician's mind, when a baby is born, figuratively we say, oof, we got away with it again. Um, (laughs) And that's clearly not a wellness model. Now, I don't think that way, and nor do my partners, but that's kind of the medical model for obstetrics. Um, So nurse midwives specialize in the normal, and they're very good at normal. Uh, They're very good at empowering women through education to understand uh, the natural physiology of pregnancy and birth. Um, I would argue, as I might with my bias, the perfect model is when you combine those two. So when you combine an obstetrician like me and a certified nurse midwife like my wife, um, we've got the best of both worlds. We've got a lot of overlapping, uh, overlapping skills. Uh, we've got unique skills, but when you put us together, we can handle anything that comes up, uh, I think, pretty well. So I, I love that model, but we're very complementary, or at least we should be. You've touched on this before, Chris, that your Catholic faith definitely makes a difference in how you practice OBGYN. How do those beliefs affect what you do on a daily basis, especially compared to before your conversion? Well, it's helped with decorating my space a lot because I've got crucifixes <laughs> everywhere, and I wouldn't know I wouldn't know what to put up if I were a Catholic. So, <laughs> the next question, no? Yeah, that's come in handy. You know, I. I, I think I said this earlier, but OBGYN lets, I can't imagine another specialty where you could be so Catholic and need to be so Catholic. Um, and um, certainly patients who see me are not always Catholic. Um, but I would say with a few exceptions, they appreciate that I'm practicing in a way that's consistent with my beliefs. Even if it isn't consistent with their beliefs, they appreciate that we're doing something principled. I think this day and time far too infrequently do we see that. Um, and, I, you know, patients invite me in to their dilemmas. I have Catholic patients who are struggling with church teaching, maybe on contraception or, or, or maybe on, uh, on family planning in general. And they invite me in and let me share my understanding of church teaching with them. And I just can't imagine getting to do that in another specialty. And I absolutely love that and cherish those moments. Well, and that's something that I I can only imagine as a daily occurrence for you that you're kind of rubbing elbows with a lot of the ethical things that, at least as a student, I I think a lot of students are probably trying to run the other way from, you know, dodge the challenges rather Mm -hmm. than confront them. How do you you deal with, I guess, with patients, but also your medical colleagues when you come up against something that is common practice in OB, but it's not something consistent with our faith? Well, I'm going to go outside the, uh, the rules of doctordom and uh, divulge to our listeners that physicians can be a real pain to deal with. <laughs> um, True fact. And, <laughs> when I first converted and started practicing in a Catholic way, I had a lot of physicians come to me and say, I don't understand. What are you doing? You seemed like a normal person before, you know, those sorts of things. Uh, now I find they generally just leave me alone. Um, because they know, you know, like you, we're out there, it's clear, it's, um, we don't, we don't hide it from anybody, but I still get, I still get questions, not uncommonly. Occasionally I've run afoul maybe of, of the peer review system, suggesting that I was practicing in a way that wasn't 
consistent with national standards, things like that. But, you know, one of the, one of the many beautiful things about the Holy Church and her teachings is uh, she's right, uh, and she's always right. And so right is a, is a good thing. <laughs> so uh, no matter what someone else thinks, if you've got the right information, you're right. Um, and I've, I fall back on that, and it's never failed me, at least, uh, at least thus far. Chris, if there's people out there listening who either they themselves or they have children considering a career in OBGYN or even nurse, nurse midwifery, what kind of person would be set up to best succeed in that field? Well, probably somewhat, someone somewhat twisted and demented that doesn't have a sense of <laughs> time and lifestyle. <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't say that. Um, you just you know, <laughs> Fortunately, we can Photoshop that. And, <laughs> you know, uh, every specialty takes a unique sort of temperament and personality. You know, we have a lot of adrenaline in obstetrics and gynecology, a lot of excitement. We have emergencies and we have life and death. That's fun, but it's also fatiguing. But that's not for everybody. Um, we have downtimes and we have emotional times and we have crying and we have angry patients who are hurting. Um, that's not for everyone. Um, I would say if you like any of obstetrics and gynecology, you could emphasize that in your career. But what you have to like more than anything is caring for women. Um, you have to like that. You've got to be able to see the the God-given beauty and the design of uh, a female reproductive physiology. And I don't think it's very hard to see that. It's so self-evident. Now, of course, everyone wouldn't agree with that. But I think above all, you have to see that beauty and want to do it. You have to be willing to dedicate yourself to it. That's true of any specialty. Uh, it's particularly true of ours. Um, we work hard. Um, but, you know, hard work is getting up and working in a steel mill 14 hours a day, six days a week. Uh, that's hard work. Uh, I would be bold and say what the three of us do, that doesn't really count as hard work. We're not, <laughs> we're not using our backs and we're not getting uh, maimed and, <laughs> and injured at work. Uh, we get amazing kudos. We get to have amazing relationships. Uh, and occasionally we get to do something really big and really relevant. That's not hard work. Um, and if you, can, if you can come to see that, you'll understand that it's a, it's a gift. It's, it's not hard work. Chris, what final comments would you like to leave about OBGYN with our listeners? Yeah, we need good ones. We need good Catholic ones. Uh, and I guess I would direct my comments uh, based on some of the statistics to men. So if you're a medical student and this interests you, don't allow the system, as it were, to, uh, to dissuade you. Find uh, maybe a male OBGYN, maybe a female OBGYN that'll take you in and help you understand the beauty of it, but you do not have to be afraid that you're going to be unsuccessful because of your gender. Uh, it's just not the truth. You might have a little bump in the road occasionally, but that's okay. It doesn't matter. Chris, that's phenomenal. I had a blast doing this. Uh, we're going to wrap this up after the break with our trivia question and your comments regarding the answer. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the medical trivia question. Yes, and it relates to uh, Chris's Holy Family Birth Center. You know, in the world in which I circulate, I was under the, the impression that a huge percentage of women have home births, underwater births, above water births, I don't know, all kinds of births I'd never even dreamed of. Well, uh, so I looked it up. And so that's the question. Since 2004, out-of-hospital births have become more common, 77% more at home, twice as many at-home birth centers. So as of three years ago, 2017, what percentage of births do you think took place outside a hospital? And I was shocked at how few. I, I agree. I, my impression, just with the people I talked to, is much higher. The answer is 1.6%. Only one in every 62 births. That was shocking. Indiana is a little above average. It's one in 39 births. Indiana Most, is always a little above average. This is something... Oh. Like Lake Wogabon, like Lake right. Wobegon, right? Where <laughs> all the children right. are above average. Alaska actually has the most with nearly 8%, <laughs> one in 13 births. In Louisiana, the least, less one in every 217 births. So, Chris, what kind of commentary can you give us on these numbers? Yeah, it's interesting. I referenced, you know, earlier, I think there's a, a bit of a pendulum that's swinging in favor of natural birth 
And then as that happens, that it's a continuum of natural birth to out of hospital birth. Uh, I think we'll continue to see that grow uh, as people become a little more natural minded and think about pregnancy more from a wellness perspective than from an illness perspective. Anecdotally, um, the COVID pandemic drove a lot of people to the birth center because they didn't want to be in the hospital. Ah, good um, point. There was a feeling as though it's unsafe. There were visitor restrictions in some hospitals, in some communities, all out visitor prohibition. And it right. was more lax in birth centers. So uh, I think we'll see that number uh, continue to grow. I mean, listeners, if, if, it, if it interests you at all, um, go to the uh, American Association of Childbearing Centers, uh, look up birth centers in your area. There's plenty of peer-reviewed data and New England Journal of Medicine articles and the like showing the safety of out-of-hospital birth for healthy, uh, healthy women. So it's there. Find it. You won't be sorry. Is it cheaper, Chris, or is it more expensive? You know, comparing prices in medicine is so difficult, isn't it? We've talked before about health insurance. Uh, what uh, hospitals charge health insurance companies is a big mystery that few of us could even begin to understand. But dollar for dollar, uh, a birth at a freestanding birth center is a fraction of the price uh, of a birth in a hospital, a fraction. Chris, and thank you so much for your wisdom. I think you've inspired people to go into OBGYN. Thank you, listeners, for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. And please, despite some of the ridiculous things you've heard me say on this show, <laughs> share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. They can always find us at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor and rate us uh, and help others around you know how great the show is and please write to us tell us if there's something you heard on dr doctor may have changed your life or if you have questions you'd like to have us address in future episodes this is dr tom mcgovern and this is dr chris stroud and dr Andrew malali signing off until your next dose of dr doctor Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit redeemerradio.com slash doctor.